Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from Kingston University in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, I'm joined by Donald and Jason of Matheson Whiteley Architects based here in London. Donald and Jason set up the practice about five years ago and have been working solidly since then, gathering a reputation for being able to extract characterful moments from the fabric of the cities where they work and turning this into a language by which they might make new interventions. So Donald and Jason, welcome to Kingston. Thanks a million for coming. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Great to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you here. It's great. Because your practice is relatively young. You're, what, four or five years? Five this year. So how did that happen? So it's still fresh. So how did you guys come to set up the practice? Um, partly serendipity, I guess. Um, I had been working at Hedzog Demeron in Basel and moved to... London and it still had a kind of relationship with the practice so I was doing some work with them remotely and also had a couple of um, my own projects and gra- gradually that, that built up and I was meeting up with Donald because I'd met him through the office and used to kind of ask him questions about subconsultants and things and um, <laughs> at some point he was also talking about what his next step was and I had too much work for myself, so we, we just kind of talked about teaming up, and we were kind of working together, sort of inform, form, informally for a little bit, and then um, a client who's become a really important client for us, um, the artist Ryan Gander, he um, got in touch about a project, which was a free postgraduate art school that he was trying to set up, and said. So we'd, we'd been discussing it for a little bit and said, could we come and attend a meeting with the Arts Council and a few other people in Suffolk to talk about that project? And so Donald and I went there and we were sitting around this room that had a lot more people than we'd originally anticipated. And one by one, starting from the opposite end of the table, everybody kind of introduced themselves and said who they were from. And then I was sort of watching, <laughs> watching the conversation. And when it got to us, I thought... If I say Matheson Whiteley, Donald won't be upset because his name's first and it's alphabetical. So I said Jason Whiteley from Matheson Whiteley, and that was kind of the origin of the practice in a way. Uh, but it felt like you weren't surprised when he said it was a practice at that stage? No, I don't I think it was, it was quite an uh, interesting sort of shared direction by that point, even if it hadn't necessarily been vocalised. But yeah, I was working at... Um, Herzog de Muron, but in their London office on the Tate Tanks project. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, when that completed in 2012, I decided it was the right time to leave employment and um, I didn't envisage going into a partnership. Um, but yeah, it became quite clear to me that that was a like really great great opportunity because Jason has already done a. Uh, you know, fortunately for me, done a bit of groundwork and had, you know, admittedly had a kind of a, a really interesting client base kind of in process. He also had, like, concept design in the bag <laughs> and wasn't entirely sure quite how to enter the planning system. So I could, um, I suppose I could offer something and, uh, yeah, and then we started working together. That's it. That's interesting because, but you before had worked for Tony Fratton, yeah. yeah, for how many years? Was it just about seven or eight? About eight years, yeah. And then you joined Herzog and Demure in two thousand and eight, or it was, I was there for about three years for yeah. for construction of the tanks mainly, and then quite heavily involved in the gallery uh, side of the new uh, the new project that's you know opened recently, okay. so the Switch House. Yeah, yeah. But that's interesting because you're. Work methodology doesn't, despite this apprenticeship in Herzog and Demeron, it doesn't overtly speak. Am I misreading it, or is there other things that you're taking from... Well, speaking, I mean, personally, what, what I took from there was just a sort of, almost like extreme professionalism. Yeah. <laughs> like, as a sort of, you know, really good grounding as a project architect. And um, I think because I was... I was... In, like deep in our kind of site office, there was less direct sort of line of communication or contact with where the ideas were coming from, which was in, in, invariably from Basel. I mean, so I think you know, I, I 
I've heard about how it was in Basel. I wasn't working there. I was very much kind of front end site experience. I think, you know, I probably had an ambition to have a practice since I graduated. And through working at various places and for sure at Hatzog Demeron, um, had a sense that you didn't want to leave a place like Hatzog Demeron and try and run at the same speed when you were on that train mm. because there's just so much power with the way they move forward and the clarity of ideas and the kind of body of work they have as a reference and so on. It's, it's kind of extraordinary. It's like sort of being in the surge when you're part of it, but it's not yours. Mm. And um, so I think for about probably about six, five or six years before setting up on my own, I'd been kind of working, in my head it was kind of a parallel thing, okay. where you kind of have, you know, in, in um, like a set of notebooks and so on, just trying to think about what, I guess a sort of course of self-study in a way, thinking about what ideas were interesting or what was kind of a contemporary thing or um, I guess just a kind of curiosity that was expressed in, in kind of notebooks and sketches and, and that kind of thing. N not really any interest in doing anything with that, but in the back of my head this idea that when you hit play, you're kind of coming with something of your own trajectory. And I think from Herzog Dameron, I mean it basically defines our working method in a way, or it'll probably be the, the kind of cross-pollination of the people who were at Sana, Omar and HDM at the time. There's a kind of common common working method I think is what we do a version of in terms of how we organize ourselves and how we file and how we kind of do things but some of the, the sort of soup or the the ideas came from that period of self-study where I don't think yeah I mean, there was no no bigger ambitions apart from just curiosity I think but it was all it was all sort of outside and it didn't feel like being part of the office it felt like something that was that was kind of we were kind of more like we both kind of fell into it where we kind of we didn't really realise it was a practice. Now, I think we both had ambitious to have our own practice, but we didn't think about each other, and then a job arrived, mm. and suddenly you go, there was a moment like where suddenly it was Clancy Moore, and, but it never felt like a decision. So that, you know, what you're talking about there, which is constructing a position critically as you were going, we kind of found ourselves doing that live in the jobs, which is probably frustrating for our clients initially. Uh, but it's an interesting one, because it's so often these things, it's serendipity, it's chance. Mm. You can be ready for it, but... And I think that thing of being ready is interesting. Um, it's kind of intriguing that uh, we're having this interview on International Women's Day and we have a problem in architecture, I think, to do with the gender balance. And it was one of the things that Shelley McNamara said years ago to everybody. She said, be ready, just be ready. It can happen when you're 40, it can happen when you're 50, but be ready for when the knock comes mm -hmm. or when the opportunity arises. Yeah. But then setting up a practice in London, okay, it was easy for us in Dublin because space is cheap especially in a recession now we were earning no money but you could at least live for pretty much nothing but 2012 london different context day eh? so a bit fraught initially i'd imagine um i think again that was just a hetzel dimmeron thing where you you look in the in my head at least the practice has three parts it has um somehow how whatever we do to make sure there's a pipeline of, of projects coming in and they're, they have a certain kind of character to them there's the work to do that work and the planning involved and thinking about the people and the resources and how we're going to file and do stuff like that. And then there's the kind of finance and operations side and you watch HDM and each of those parts are extremely professional and you see the kind of interaction between them and the fact that all of it is part of it being a practice. And that's, I mean, again, you know, by no means are we anywhere near that, but at least the idea that... In, that there's kind of three parts to it and you're trying to lift the whole boat evenly you don't want to kind of end up with a ton of work and you don't know how you're going to do it and you run out of money or you don't want to you know it's kind of three parts and at least in the way that we organize our time you know I'm always thinking there's three columns on my to-do list and it's 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 addressing those three in turn and then then thinking about kind of you know what can we automate who can we get to help these bits or whatever it is and so you, what's interesting is that you're sitting and you're part of informing this work method, it's now shared work method, but because you hadn't seen the genesis of it, it's become this new mm. thing. So you were obviously critting this <coughs> process and developing it. <laughs> yeah. quite, quite critical sometimes, yeah. Yeah, I'd like, but, but I'm interested in that. So but No, I think it's, it's interesting hearing Jason speak about um, like preparing 
his position ready for having the opportunities. Um, I think when I when I when the opportunity came for me to, to work with him, it was there was a sort of um, we didn't really talk about what sort of work we were going to do. You know, I suppose it was more about how we're going to get some work. Yeah. I think what we had, um, maybe it was a, 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 a sort of consequential thing, or it was just a fortunate timing. But we, I think, we met individuals who were more um, looking for somebody to facilitate what they wanted to do, and they weren't actually drawn to us particularly because of projects. I mean, they couldn't have been, you know, because we didn't have necessarily something to say. I mean, you had a chair. But maybe, I think, to some extent, it was probably that chair that actually gave me a sense that Jason had something to say as a designer. And I certainly felt, with the, the sort of nuts and bolts experience I had, I had something to, that I could do as an, as an architect, you know, in the classic sense. So there was sort of that combination that maybe was appealing to those particular individuals who were looking to build. Yeah. And there was almost like a sort of sense of, um, like, assurance, like, a professional assurance how we conveyed that was to say what we'd done at other practices what, what, and um, that was enough because maybe it was just personality or something that came into it but we got the, that leap of faith for someone to say okay you've got the job get on with it what's really interesting is in your you know very nice little book there's this conversation at the end and in it you're talking about how you welcome the abrasion between the ideal of the work process and the real as manifest in a tender return. And that's normally quite a torturous thing. I find it really interesting because your, your architecture seems to be very comfortable with being refined and almost barely there. Like it's present, but it's very comfortable about minimising itself. And is that editing happening in those, at that moment in the tender return? Is it happening earlier? Much earlier, I think. I mean, yeah, right right from the start, we're looking for concept. real stuff. You know, we're looking for what's the what's the problem what's the worst thing that's going to happen what's the what's the way into this project you know and it's much more diag diagrammatically driven than i was comfortable with initially you know it was quite cold analysis but it is interesting how you know if you hold on to those solutions and just kind of get the other things right you know the other peripheral things like what's what is it made of what's the quality of that mm. how do things come together then um, none of that gets muddied, you know, there's still the clarity there and I think that's what um, has been interesting about the partnership is like having, <clears throat> not, not worrying necessarily too much about where it's come from, whether it's that solution comes from Jason or me, then we each do our bit to kind of protect it a little bit yeah. from all the, you know, the sort of vortex <laughs> of, of doing it. And you, you seek to kind of talk about the potential problems or the, the realities of how things are made or the building context. Yes, but in, in like a very, in a very kind of crude way, I think. We yeah. try and, I mean, we, we try and speak really very directly about everything. It's <coughs> like it's, it's big or it's a straight line or you try and make this clear, you know, just clear that out. Or the, I think that was, again, something that I learned from Herzog Demron, just that you, you kind of trust yourself that when the beautiful thing comes, you'll see it. And then the rest of it's just professional work. You know, you just work to make everything more refined, clearer, better, simpler, um, you know, more cost-effective, more efficient, easier to build. All these kind of things are just being resolved, solving solving problems, and you're looking for that kind of beautiful moment. And then when you see it, then then you then you find that, and the project gets a kind of clarity. And that beautiful thing, again, you know, I'm just looking at the projects that I know of your work, but it's. It seems to be something that arrives, and a lot of them to do with contingency or observing something mm. fundamental to do. Okay, to, like those artist studios where a floor needs to be cut and a floor needs to be propped, mm. Mm. and then there's this beautiful figure that emerges, which is different in each studio. Yeah. Yeah. But that obviously involves okay, there's a strategic decision to do with volumetric stuff. That's not where the beautiful thing is. The beautiful thing is then how do we cheaply prop these floors, mm. which is a bit further mm. down the road, which is interesting. So you're comfortable with... Probably going to disappoint you by telling you those props were already there. They were already there, so <laughs> it was just a case of working back to yeah, them. Yeah, it was like a process of um, subtraction. <laughs> yeah, but they... But you're right, it's kind of remarkable how, how almost perfectly formed they are as like graphic kind of elements in the space. But, but no, it was some, you know, pipe-smoking engineer design those and it's a beautiful <laughs> calibration of where the edge of the slab is in relation all that stuff to. for sure you know we, we've got our eye on but those are kind of 
actually those things are things that we very quickly come to agreement on and we sort of say a little bit here a little bit there and then it's it's kind of clear but i think the work is to try and but i don't think we ever like on that particular project i don't think we ever we made the model we did the sort of um for the client we did the representational view you know to say so the space would be like but we never sort of congratulated ourselves saying oh look we've revealed this amazing thing it's it kind of just became key yeah. to the project and never once did we suggest covering it up or anything like that yeah 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 once it was there it was there what's lovely about yeah. that is it can survive any value engineering because whatever yeah. everything else is and it is it, you know maybe there's a sort of like a sort of un, unspoken sh- shared appreciation for certain things like certain values you know so it's not we, when we started working together we never sort of said well I like wood and you like concrete you know it's kind of <laughs> we sort of seem to hit upon the same the same things that um, somehow run through the projects in, in a way and you work a lot in drawing plans then as actually, well actually we work I mean a lot of it mostly the work is entirely in BIM so I'm probably one of these sort of odd generational turning point where I never drew a building in, in 2D like I mean obviously never by hand but also never in AutoCAD by 2D uh, I've only ever worked in BIM so I think it's a I mean who knows what in the end the effect of that is I think it's probably unclear but but I think it's a certain way of thinking you know that, that <clears throat> behind behind the work there's a kind of or behind a sort of a physical expression of a design at any one point it's more like a database of all the project components. Yeah, so you start with the BIM model of the, because you're working a lot in existing context, yeah. so you start with the BIM model of the existing context and then it's about adding to that and it's always yeah, considering the construction then, obviously. Well, I think at first, no, it's much more spatial organisation. So it's it's the BIM to understand the situation and, okay. then it's, and then it's starting to kind of put together design studies yeah. as spatial organisation, like what's, how big does everything need to be, what's it next to, I think quite often we talk about the right thing of the right size next to the right stuff, you know, and that's a lot of the work. It's, kind of, it's, in, it's interesting because I think those early BIM models are never right. That's extremely I am like, quite suspicious of, um, you know, of, of that, like the ability for certain working methods to hide problems rather than reveal them. Or to, um, or to reveal certain things. But what, what, I, what I was going to say is that I think because you're approximating to a certain extent, you're almost like, at that point, making decisions about what's really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that decision stands. Yeah. And then in a way, that's what I mean, that there's other mechanisms uh, to try and protect those things yeah. that are important. And that might be, I don't know, like you're saying, a solid tender set or a good spec or a, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, some, the, the thing that I tend to rely on in the office uh, is, is actually Excel. <laughs> Yeah, in terms of cost monitoring and things like that, on smaller jobs where maybe it doesn't justify another professional to get involved. Yeah. And I think I think you know that's I I, I always peg that um, interest or like uh, lack of inhibition to get involved in that with my time at HDM because there was a sort of sense of freedom that you were given as a project architect there or a team member to actually just meddle and get involved in make, make other people's jobs yeah. because the quality of what we were building really, ma- really like you know, sort of lift or died on it. Yeah. On understanding other people's involvement in it, whether it's the project manager or the QS or the sub, or the trade contract and that sort of thing. So we do that as well. Yeah. Like we have our database of costs and mm-hmm. every claim we've got complete control of it with these huge Excel sheets and they're hellish, right? Though I mean, like we kind of love them, but you know, mm-hmm. you're doing a claim and it's a day you're kind of working through it and I like the discipline of it but we're also now enjoying the liberation of getting slightly bigger budgets getting a proper QS on board now it allows us to see their side of the table mm-hmm. um, which we wouldn't otherwise do if it was just a full design team package mm-hmm. there's something about the architect immersing themselves in the full range of the discipline early on that seems vital well, I think it's all kind of grist for the mill of concept design in the end yeah. you know, all, all yeah, these different, think, the, the more that you understand this is something I've learned a lot from Donald. I think the more of the, the whole process you understand, the more you can see what's interesting at a very early point in the design process. This is really interesting because obviously we're you know we're in a university and we teach and all of this. So where like you were educated in Scotland, were you or whereabouts? Yeah, uh, Edinburgh. Yeah. And you in New Zealand. And in those schools, 
there's always this thing between the school and the real and this question. How how was that conversation pitched where you were? And well, I think um, it just wasn't covered. This idea of engagement in the real world it was so bifurcated in my course. So there was structures and professional services and so on. But oddly enough, we had a really interesting um, sort of second year paper that taught you how to be a property developer, but um, which was kind of fascinating. Yeah. But um, we but then your kind of design side in the sort of late nineties, so <clears throat> sort of heavily. US with you know kind of East Coast theory orientated which I'd kind of completely sort of jettisoned uh, my last last two years I think and kind of gone rogue rogue in a way and um, rogue where rogue rogue into kind of uh, probably the art world I think so yeah. I mean so let's say ninety eight ninety nine I was kind of pre internet sort of ordering early Gabriel Rothko kind of catalogue and en- engaging much more with this stuff um, and then just being really stumped recognising in, in it a kind of contemporary form of beauty that I think was extremely compelling and I wasn't a, I wasn't kind of aware of another architecture yeah. I think now I've learned sort of where to see that but certainly at that point I didn't, didn't have eyes for it um, so finding that stuff really compelling but not at all understanding how to kind of make something in response to it and, and being pretty frustrated and having quite a bad kind of last year because of it. Well, also because presumably if the school was heavily immersed in a theoretical discourse, it was very difficult to get a crit based on this aesthetic yeah. language you were yeah. exploring, yeah. right? Yeah, and also, I mean, you know how vulnerable, vulnerable work can be outside of the kind of context that it's meant to sort of be viewed in. So sure. if you kind of come up, you know, you sort of say, well, there's something about this photograph of... Two, two puddles after the rain and some bike tracks between it. You know, unless that's kind of in a in an environment where everybody kind of understands the trajectory of that, it doesn't really, you know. I mean, it was a bit foolish on my part, but I think it was probably probably a bit. I could have been a bit more strategic. <laughs> yeah, I don't know though. I think strategy when you're young is kind of pointless because you never really find the ground that you're on. I think you have to take a risk. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's about how the environment you can respond to those risks. Mm. Um, and yourself, Donald, in Scotland, was it Edinburgh? Or? It was Edinburgh. Um, I don't really like, remember learning an awful lot other than um, the opportunity to sort of look a bit further afield. So, for example, I, ran a, I did a lecture series in my final year and I invited um, some architects that I was interested in. One of them was Tony Fretton. And... I think yeah, I think I think maybe started to develop an interest in a particular type of work. Yeah. That, but then then I think I got a little bit not necessarily way late, but um, then became a, a working you know practitioner or a member of a practice. Moved through a few different practices, built up technical expertise with bigger commercial offices and things like that, and then kind of came back to uh, Fretton's work. When he won the British Embassy and got, he had an opportunity to work there. So that's interesting. I think that I would probably say that that was like a very, very elongated, protracted um, educational period for me. It's like yeah. split between, you know, maybe it was like a, I don't know, twelve year <laughs> study that's period. But that's interesting. So your thesis, you're you're putting together this lecture series for the school, right? Yeah. And so who else did you invite? Um, so just some Bates. Um, a graphic design practice called Tomato. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, just you know, people that we. Um, so you had. I, I was making the the judgment about you know how to spend the money. Yeah. On their flights and things like that. So it was. Um, it's interesting to think that the people that I was interested in through you know the books that would or the, or the journals that would turn up in our library, are kind of still some of the same. Yeah. You know, types of work and types of um, investigation that, that I'm, I'm interested in now, just instinctively. No, I always sure. look, look to, if I've got a particular uh, problem that I'm dealing with, design-wise, I'll, you know, start with, what start with those as examples. But yeah, a little, but, um, you know, but then I think another, another thing to say is that... Uh, We've always like been been discussing the last couple of years about our relationship to teaching, mm. and I think um, I think now we're probably getting to a point that that's becoming more important 
yeah. as a development of our practice because um, I think from my point of view I think it's the one place where you're almost like encouraged or um, it's necessary for you to like re-educate or expand your own education yeah. out with just the sort of day-to-day of practice you know because a lot of the things we're talking about now are about the sort of overlap between design ambition and how you maybe pursue that or, or, or modify your day-to-day working methods to to pursue that but um that's just the tip of the iceberg i think you know i think if we were actually running an office a, a studio or something like that this this the, the two the two worlds would probably like expand but a I, think, more. I think there are you know even probably without without sort of being very explicit about it in, in the practice at least in the last three years i think we've been pretty serious about exploring color mm. and we've been quite serious about exploring proportion you know and but they're not we don't sit down and talk about those things but we sort of study that stuff and kind of look at it and we I guess I guess those are those are areas that we've developed and grown our abilities in within the practice mm-hmm. and, and I think it's been an interesting process to do that I think yeah, we're much more confident we're much more able to articulate something with those in those two areas now than we were three years ago we're much more clear about what we're trying to do with them yeah it's interesting because they're fundamental things right colour and proportion you know in another conversation we were having uh, with David Callum actually uh, they were talking about the facade and mm-hmm. the culture of the facade and mm-hmm. these fundamental things you know out of which amazingly rich conversations are hung mm. they're, they're curious because they happen very rarely actually within schools of architecture in a bizarre way okay they happen in certain schools I mean, my education, it was a good school, it was an enjoyable place, but boy, oh boy, did a good metaphor get you a good crit. Yeah. And I can spin a good yarn. And so you knew in a way you were kind of spinning. And mm. that you're not quite sure if you were getting somebody saying, well, actually, if you just did this, if mm. you just adjusted this. Mm. Nobody ever talked to me about those things. You know, if that proportion was just slightly off square, actually, it would release you to do something else over here. You know, these kind of things. They're very difficult to verbalise. Yeah. yeah. But it seems to me almost essential to be almost drawing with the student, not as an instructional thing, because they'll probably discard it, hopefully they do, mm. but merely so that they can understand how your brain works. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was a few tutors who always drew beside you, now they took the sketches away, mm. but I loved those, because you were just watching, and going, okay, that's how you move, you know. Mm. And it was a way of understanding a culture, because you got to see that person over several years drawing repeatedly mm. similar things in response to similar questions. But I like the generosity of it because in a way it was, say, take your conversation about a photograph and a tire track. They were genuinely trying to give you the ground that they could see that you could stand on. Yep. Which is far more generous, I think, than merely another interesting conversation on top of what's already an interesting observation. Yeah. And yeah. that froth of what's interesting, mm-hmm. I find very obscuring. Because it's when the students ask you this really fundamental question that's when you kind of, it does change your practice, mm. forces you to confront things. And then, yeah. I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the brilliant inventions, discoveries, whatever, of Herzog Demeron was how to make the entrance of a public building, which, you know, the kind of classic problem of a, the entrance of a public building now is that um, a piece of glass comes at a certain height, and beyond that height you've got to use bits of mastic and bits of metal to make another piece of glass that's higher and so you don't experience the clarity of that glass and you know a way that quite often people compose a public building is sort of one mass and another mass that are separated together to make a kind of void you know notional void but when you build that void it's just this junk thing of metal and glass and rubber yeah and so the, the brilliance of Hatzel Dameron is that you make those entries as a sort of low horizontal yeah. slot, the height of a piece of glass. So when you pass through it, you feel that kind of passage from inside to outside. And I mean, I just think those things are so insanely intelligent, but you have to, you have to have a sort of, it has to be the right context to have a conversation around those intelligences. Otherwise, they just sort of, you know, they're completely ignored or invisible. And I think in a lot of architectural settings, it seems like it, it's hard to sort of see that. It's funny, I was having a in a different school last week and somebody actually said oh, in a conversation that was not about architecture at all about statistics and sociology I wonder is it possible to design anything anymore and I felt so sorry for that person because she'd intellectualised mm. this inability to act 
when actually you're talking about something very fundamental. I mean, the first time you enter the uh, tape, exactly. modern, yeah, yeah, and you everybody pauses the same ten steps inside, mm. and there's something fundamental about that pause, right? And that space, it's you know, because of the basic grammar of okay, that's a very extreme example, yeah. but it's such an example. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, I think it's that kind of it's that kind of intelligence that for us at least that's the sort of model for what we're trying to go for where it's the, the kind of organisation of atoms in the end you know you just got like two buildings are basically just a pile of you know, aluminium, concrete, silicon and so on and so forth but it's the intelligence behind them that makes one extraordinary and one you know very banal and that organisation is it's so interesting in terms of the settings it provides the kind of things it makes possible the things it makes not possible the kind of you know, physical experience of that. I think those are the kind of topics that that interest us, and also the moments that we are trying to find in our work. Mm-hmm. And they're interesting because they're very difficult to represent to anybody except for taking them to the building. Mm. Yeah. In a way, am I wrong about that? Well, I think how you represent it, if you, if if it's if it's your design and you've got the like Jason said, you know, you've got that. That's what you're striving for. In a project, you think you've achieved it, and it's described currently in a set of drawings. You know, the 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 next step is to sort of project that confidence that you can that it will it will be like that. Yeah. You know, and um, I suppose back back to the point about combining or or, or allowing space in what we do to uh, ex- explore those things. Like the te- the teaching for me is. I imagine it would be a, a way that we would engage with real references yeah. much more than we do at the moment. Yeah. Because we look at things in books. Yeah. We look at we show people in the studio when we're talking about a detail or a solution, uh, an example in a book. We use those references to sort of suggest in a suggestive way to, in a in a client presentation or something to say it might be a bit like this or, but in a way it's um, it's to learn a l- little bit more. In, in those places where someone else has done it well. Yeah. And and I think, you know, we don't really do that. We don't visit other buildings. We don't, as, as part of our practice, we might do it independently yeah. or others in the studio do it independently, but even those things don't get discussed. So we, um, I think it's, I'm very interested in us um, taking that step into teaching for specifically for that reason, to kind of carve out time yeah. to I develop think, that. Because I, I feel like, I don't think I've, um, uh, I think I've learned right. enough in in practice. So I've learned a lot of skills, but there's other skills I think I need or I sort of are essential. But it's funny because, and I may sound controversial in saying this, but it's certainly my own motivation in teaching is a sort of enlightened self-interest. I'm not here because of some kind of sense of duty. You know, uh, it's, it's, I think it's when you've got a stake in the game that, well, for me, and I might be wrong, but it does feel like that, that, you know, there's, there's live issues in our office, live problems being addressed. And Colin's having conversations with his students in Belfast, and I'm having conversations with my students here. And there's an overlap between those things and the congruence. Now, it was also brilliant to teach together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's these things when you're in a building together as a partnership, but you're also in front of your students talking to the students about the building and they're talking back to you. And I love those right. moments yeah. because the artifact is always far more rich than any reductive description. Mm. And you can see at every turn a multiplicity of, di- of legitimate readings of the thing, mm. all of which are present mm. in a way that's not possible with a, a uh, the canon dissected through a book, for instance, yeah. you know, yeah. you know the, the, the Pantheon is, 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 is nothing without walking yeah. through that mm. bizarre portico and into that amazing room, you know, it's almost impossible to talk about it without having done that, in a way, you know, without having actually made that journey with your students. It's true, although it's also hard sometimes to see things if you haven't read it in a book. True. So I think that the two things connect. You know, it's going to go a little bit back to what you said about representation, because I think as a practice, we're not very interested in representation as a topic. We were kind of, I mean, for sure at school I always found it very, the idea of making a kind of elaborate drawing for anything just seemed completely pointless. And I think, you know, particularly 
at, a, at an early phase is BIM, so that's a different kind of way of working. And then, you know, I think we would never, the, the idea of sort of drawing for anything other than pr pr the production information stuff, it's, it's not it's just not us. But, but I think I, yeah, we I, are interested in representation. Other than ske sketching, it's interesting. Sketching, other than yes. sketching, all the drawings we, we produce are never, they're always for a particular purpose. There's always an in, uh, uh, there's always an intention, like to persuade or to describe. Could draw. There's never really any kind of um, surprise in making it. Do you know? What I, do you know? What I understand this. But this I, would, <laughs> I would say the one thing that we are, the one place it does happen is, I think, I'm really into this idea of JPEGs. That somehow the kind of JPEGs we make early on. And the JPEGs we make with the photographer are sort of conceptually the same thing. I think that's really interesting. And you, you kind of hate it because we kind of mess with these camera angles when we're you know, like from there. With, we work a lot with, the, we work sort of almost only with a photographer called Maris Mazoulis from Switzerland. And um, you know, what I love about the way he works is it's, it really isn't, he's not so interested in the kind of conventions of photography as they've developed. He's very interested in sort of what's possible with digital photography. And somehow that process in my head is similar to what you do with BIM and a rendering engine. Yeah, but it's, it's interesting because this comes from column now, but, and now it's a shared position, but one that I was running hard to catch up with initially is he kind of sees representation not as this esoteric other thing that you do for another person. It's the methodology solely mm. that you do to ask the hard questions of yourself. So actually, in everything you've just described about which works with your position mm -hmm. it doesn't work with mine but it works with yours that's a representational device for me it's the device by which you raise the questions which allow you to make the observations mm -hmm. and it, it it sounds actually to me from what you're describing is that there's quite a critical representation methodology at work one of the model I mean the BIM model the image the, the, yeah. the kind of distorted photograph that can become allow an abstract reading of something mm -hmm. and and that's just my position, which is that it's 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 not described. Yeah, really it's not described yeah. enough to students, perhaps, or I certainly didn't understand it as a student. I used to get pissed off with just doing the drawing for the mm -hmm. sake of the drawing, mm -hmm. and I didn't really put my soul into it. It's fascinating, bit. yeah. But it was when you make it's the met, and everybody who does interesting work seems to have they do curious things in their methods, which is unique to them, yeah. But which allows them to make observations. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because a, a project that would kind of let's see where it goes, but. We're sort of thinking of a project as part of London Festival of Architecture, which is um, making these BIM, BIM models a bit more visible, I guess, sort of working with that. So it'd be interesting to see. The, the, the difference between a photograph and a, like a, a screenshot from a BIM model mm. is quite, it's quite fundamental. I, I sort of think at some point, and they're both JPEGs, there is no... Like, like, I mean, one one is sort of pre pre fact and one is post fact. But if you sort of remove that and you just take, but I can often I can get over the the sort of disruption of looking at a photograph, yeah, and seeing like the field of the, the field of view being so obscured in the in the frame that it's it's actually a dis, it's a distraction from what I believe the photograph should be telling me. But I think that's anyway, I know that there's something in that. There's a deliberation in it for Jason, like it's 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 actually making a statement. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I just maybe we I don't necessarily feel confident yet about our position to sort of let that be our um, kind of public face to the work. Do you know what I mean? A sort of less conventional, yeah, warped sense of I think what the work is. Yeah. I'd I'd much I suppose I'm much more comfortable with it being in the conventions of how um, completed projects are normally represented. But you I see mean, it and you see the project. Mm -hmm. you're not, there's not some other sort of um, uh, well, polemic there. It's, it's, it's some anticipating the fact that I mean, we should all be thinking about moving image and you know, the, rep the use of moving image and representation of buildings that you finish. Like that, that should be the real topic. But um, I think the kind of messing with digital photography is like a sort of in one way, it's a kind of halfway step in that direction. Mm. Yeah, but it's interesting because a partnership is such a common form of practice in architecture, which is why it's so perplexing that we're taught to be sole authors. Mm. Um, 
But I think that you it, maybe the value of the sole authorship thing is that you require attention. If there is no tension in a partnership, I think there's very little productive thinking. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting that we're having a conversation about this tension between it. And it's not often enough articulated, actually. It's like, uh, you know, there are famous architects that have done magnificent work and continue to do, but the work that they and their partnerships and the work they were doing when they were working in tandem in partnership before they got big, being far more fecund, far more ambiguous, mm. far more nuanced and rich. Mm-hmm. And no matter how accomplished the work is post- I feel it lacks something mm. and I'm not going to be specific but you know we all know these stories about certain practitioners and I think that the, the nature of those things are yeah we don't talk it's funny in architecture we don't talk about that side of it enough because that's the actual meat of what we do mm. we sit in a room with people and we talk about yeah, things I think to a certain extent I think some of the tension comes from what you are asking earlier about setting up practice in London mm. okay and you know to a certain extent, yes, you have to make it pay, you have to make, it has to be sustainable, makes sense, and I suppose there is a, there is an underlying tension between my, maybe my instincts about keeping it, to a certain extent, conventional, and yeah. following the path that you've seen others who are a few years ahead of you followed, or maybe what I see in Jason's approach to the photography and that sort of thing, that, that maybe the right approach, and the true approach is to take risks with it, yeah. And to and to test things in that in that sense. So, you know, I think that's ongoing sort of um, <laughs> and discussion to a certain extent. And that thing about commercial pressure is an interesting one because again, it's something that in our school we never talked about money, and it was a dirty word. Mm-hmm. It was a real problem actually because okay, I'm from a background where we didn't have very much money, and it just seemed so hard to make a step where you needed to make a livelihood out of this yeah. thing. And we were completely ill-equipped initially to do that. But then it was interesting coming to the UK when we were earlier practice and practitioners here are more savvy about commerce. They are aware that they are business people as well as practitioners and there's no division in their mind about that. That was a great empowering thing for us, you know. Like Tony Fretton talking about how he structures office and that they keep within hours and they do it professionally, or say Cruz Asinjin doing the same thing. And you're going, no, that's not a diminution, that's absolutely correct, because it's another way of editing, it's another way of yeah. giving respect to the work and yeah. editing the work. And I think when we fully harnessed that, we found it, we were late to that, but we found it a liberation, you know, a real liberation, that you, know, you do have to respect commerce, you do have to respect those things, and you have to put bread on the table. Mm. Which is something you were doing natively from the start because you were in such professional context before you set up your practice together. And then what's interesting as well is this thing about um, trust, which is that when you start, as you're saying, the clients have nothing but which to trust you with other than yourselves. Mm. And now you have work and you have you know, accomplished work. Is that changing now that your clients are coming to you with a different question or... Are you, I think I think we we were sort of reflecting on this rare moment of reflection recently, and uh, we kind of realised that I think we work best with clients who have pretty clear ambitions. I mean, even if those ambitions are sort of probably stretching the limits of what's possible, I think that's that's kind of a situation that we're and yeah, maybe it helps a bit to be able to um, say. Or we've done this, which is a bit like that, or we've, we've done this, which is kind of a similar situation. But quite often with clients, it's conversations that, I mean, Donald's very much leading where it's sitting down and saying, well, if we um, split the contract into two parts and we, we did this first and the second level, then we could maybe achieve that. I think a lot of it's that kind of early strategizing about how, how to realistically approach ambitions. Mm. And those conversations don't feel like they're really any different. I mean, perhaps clients see us a little bit differently, but that that's not something that I kind of feel too much. I don't think. Okay, and it could be, it's a lot of artists. You've worked a lot in the art world, and you can see because mm. that's school that you talked about, the free school. Yeah, that's still a project on the board. Yep, that's, yeah, so the kind of version of that is on site at the moment. Oh, fantastic! Okay, yeah. so that's something that'll be finished this year. Or yeah, that's a couple of months. Right. Okay. I'm not it's kind of a. Con- it's a, The initial ambition was to convert a, a large Victorian, disused Victorian building, which was a big, you know, undertaking. Um, I think that process led to more 
con con sort of conception around the idea of the school and, and, and its model. So the, the artists in question is building a studio for himself, which we're involved in. And as part of that, there'll be a set of, a small set of studio spaces. So the, the sort of idea, the embryo of the school will start there. Great. Mm. So it's going, to, it's going to develop then iteratively then? Potentially, yeah. 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 As a sort of um, uh, scholarship bursary model um, with artists invited in to make work. It's interesting, it's the project that started the practice. Yeah. And now it's beginning to become realised. That, that kind of delay mm. is nice. I think it's the pace of practice being so slow. I know we work fast, we have to, but things get realised in a very, very slow way and then they hang around for a long time. Well, I find that really enjoyable. You know, this thing where you did a building five years ago and to you it feels like a century ago. Mm -hmm. But you meet somebody and they've just seen it and it's alive to them and they remind you of it. And the same thing with the practice where you started with something which has evolved and now it's going to be built. And is there ideas in that project that now you've moved on from or that are... It's still your no, position. I think they they really. I mean, the work in that school is still kind of pretty current. I think you know the way that we think about we, we we've done quite a few artist studios, and I think the way we think about artist studios was there right at the start. I mean, also that project was really about a kind of a kind of institution that could be as public as possible, sort of as open as possible. There was the most ways it could kind of open out to the community that we could think of, and I think. There's been places where we've managed to achieve that elsewhere, and the, you know we still very much have ambitions to produce that kind of space. Mm. It's, again, it's just it's only out of envy, really. But we've only started to work with artists and actors and people like this, and the conversation is different. It, it's, it's, I think it's it, the difference to me is that there's a difference between working with people who make things and working yeah. with people who don't make things. 100%. The people who make things understand how horrible it is to make things and they, they kind of cut you some slack. And the people who don't, you know, maybe sometimes there's, there's not an awareness of just what's involved in getting like a bit of flooring to turn up at the right place at the right time with somebody who can put it down or... You know, just just the kind of the, the work involved in making things happen physically, um, and I think they're they're quite different. And somehow, what I like about working with artists, especially, uh, you know, we we never really talk about. I don't know, sort of they're very pragmatic conversations. But yeah. I think everybody's on the lookout for something nice to happen. That's what's brilliant about it is that, yeah, it's exactly the same experience for us. The people we're working with are incredibly sophisticated, cultured, creative people. But they're totally happy to spend an afternoon talking about how an I-beam meets mm. a steel mm. angle mm. and what colour it is. Mm. And colour becomes a huge conversation and it's a very direct conversation. But of course, at any moment, you know they could bring a very high level of discourse to the conversation, but it doesn't need to be in the room. Yeah, yeah. It's implied and it gives freedom for... I've learned, learned a lot from working with um, people that we've been fortunate enough to you know, build, build spaces for. I mean, there's a couple of examples out there. One artist, I think, famously um, uncompromising in their work, and you know when there were sort of hard decisions to be made on the basis of cost or whatever, they would always be completely uncompromising in what they wanted it to be. So, whereas in the same situation, in the left or my own devices, I might be let's just build it out of plasterboard. <laughs> take 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 the sort of um, you know the easy easy yeah. way out, but they didn't. And they were right because it's like two hundred times better when you sort of stick to it. And also, um, recently, in terms of more like um, confrontational situations in a project, you know, like tough contractor, how do you deal with that? My again, my kind of instinctive um, reaction to that would be to be equally aggressive. Yeah, but it was clear. That the client didn't want to be like that. They, their, their, um, their sort of um, uh, proven method of getting things done was much more collaborative and forgiving and sort of teamwork. And they were right again. You know, it sort of built a much better spirit. So it's kind of like just saying, you know, people who have to resort to 
um, principles to get things done is something that we can kind of apply to what we do and it's you know it's, 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 very, it's, it's very helpful yeah that's interesting about knowing when to mm. have resistance yeah and to accept that everything else can fall apart but this will hold yeah um, but then it's, in, it's like what you're saying with trust because because of seeing and things like that and having almost like lessons handed down it makes me more acutely aware of the, the importance of them trusting us yeah. to sort of execute on their behalf yeah. and so I, I suppose it gives us this heightened sense of the, the sort of um, world of clients that we might be you know, lucky enough to be sort of getting involved with the, the necessity for us to kind of be in our game is, is you know, is, is potentially... Yeah, but um, it's, it's it absolutely, but then there's this thing which is just, that thing, and we all face it, you know, is it plasterboard or is it whatever that material was, concrete or steel or brick, or whatever that you felt it had to be. What's wonderful, well, what's really problematic about it is situations where architects are adversarial on all fronts, so all of it has to be this way, but where are you able to focus it down to the thing? Mm. You know what it is. And actually, if you hold on to that, everything else can fall away and mist and reassemble itself around that, and the project is still there, even though everything else has changed. If you know what to hold to, it seems to be such a fundamental yeah. problem. I mean, there are projects we got it right, and there's problems, projects we got it wrong. There's projects we turned up, and what we thought was a project mm. was something else, and these kind of things. I love those. Mm. And actually, frequently, it is that abrasion with a client or somebody that that goes, no, no, I need you to hold this for me, this is, this is it. Mm. And it goes against one's instinct, but mm. somehow it's how we learn these things. Mm. There's a wonderful quote from Tavera, you know, the Portuguese architect, and he basically, in it, I'm paraphrasing, says that the only certainty that architects have to hold to is contingency. So he basically says the thing you hold fastest to is uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that, that that's the thing you bring right close to yourself and you guard that uncertainty and you trust it, it allows you to know what you need to hold. You know what I mean? It's this kind of interesting paradox, which is that if you accept, if you believe that it's all certain, then you're just simply incapable of building anything. You can't convince a client, you can't convince a builder, it's just... I mean, I think it would be, you know, there's this sort of caricature of an architect where it's sort of you're really clear and you sort of force this vision and you kind of... Yeah, that's nonsense. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a bit... I think it is a bit of a caricature because I think there's not really, it's either a generational thing or there was never that many people who were like that in the first place. But, but that sort of s seems to me to be almost the opposite of curiosity, you know, the opposite of, of wondering what the world is really like and, and kind of engaging with that and letting that sort of shape a little bit your response to it. Yeah, and it's linked in a way, and it's not to say that I'm fully on board with what I'm about to say, but I also have a problem with people who continually lament what they call the diminution of the discipline. You know, mm. architects used to do quantity surveying, blah, 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 now they don't. They used to manage the contract, now they don't. And they say that their power base has eroded. But then I see something else happening, which is that architects are more and more involved in the making of fabric, which we never were before, I mean, mm. historically. And they say, you know, in Ireland, that only 10% of the buildings that are built have an architect involved. And that is sad. But it's still a higher percentage than it's ever been at any time in our history, you know, mm. vernacular architecture mm. obviously not being the work of architects. And it does involve this contingency and it does involve this curiosity, I mean, fabric, because it is so ridden with marginal economic yeah. activities, areas heavily legislated and regulated for. And it is very different to building the monument. And it seems to me not a diminution that we have to be more flexible and more curious and more contingent, but actually a strengthening, mm. but just on a more broad-based level. I mean, that, that fabric is a little bit our topic, you know, because we, yeah. we're really in, interested in how you have a continuity, but at the same time how you add something. And, and um, the idea that, that you could walk past the building that we did and completely ignore it, but if you gave it a little bit of attention, it gave you something back. I think that quality for us is really interesting. It's really Buildings interesting. that don't, you know, that don't shout at you because that's not the right thing to do, but have something to say if you want to kind of investigate or kind of spend some time. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, ordinary is a kind of a word that gets trotted around a lot, but I'm not sure it's the right word because your work has a presence, right? You know, yeah, we don't, we, we're not interested in it being a completely background thing. I think that idea of a generic thing is a complete fiction. It's yeah. sort of this like normcore or whatever. It's like a, it's an irony. And, and I think if there's one thing that we're really not into, it's an ironic position. 
Yeah, because your buildings have a presence, you know, they, you've, they sit in such a way that there's a tension, you mm. know, um, there's the brick building modelled on the palazzo and mm. there's the facade that's mirrored, you yeah. know, and there's a similar dance at work, actually, when you see those projects. They're not fully at ease, which is quite enjoyable, they have a kind of presence, yeah. a poise or something. Yeah. Is that the right word? I'm I think sure. that was, yeah, no, it was very much that, for me, that was that earlier Roscoe stuff, it was sort of finally feeling like, what is it, maybe... 20 years later I'm starting to understand what those photographs were that in his work he was kind of finding these incredibly incidental moments and, and somehow framing them and making recognise them as something special yeah. and I think if there's any kind of ambition to um, the work that we've done so far it's to do that to kind of make something sp- special like on the street or like like just available for anybody if you want, if you want both to. those examples yeah, I was looking at them again and it's 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 sort of inherited in a way because the window sizes of the brick building are all determined by the original windows yeah. the, the mirror is you know it's a pure mirroring of something that was already there so it's um <clears throat> it's not it's not designed as invention necessarily it's like what so it's reve- revealing a, a, a sort of quality that's already there. Yeah. Um, but there's something, opportunistic is the wrong word, but there's something... You're looking for it. Yeah, you're looking to recognise something that that's the thing that we're go- now going to riff on or we're going to play on or something. But the, it's just, I think it's more like, it sort of feels right, you know, yeah. that's the sort of thing. It's not, it's, now it's, an, it's interesting now because we're sort of trying to find out a sort of justification in a way for doing that because, but at the time well, I think we, we weren't like, trying to justify it to each other it just was well, feeling that's, right. you know, that's not the way we work like I think we, we come in and we say oh, I was thinking about doing this and the other person goes oh yeah that's good or oh no that's not good and then you, you know, it's never more than that and I think it's only later that you sort of maybe see what you were trying for or it becomes clear yeah, because there's a deeper level of recognition happening behind those short sentences, mm. which is about trusting that, you know, yeah. which is enjoyable. Yeah. I, I, like, I, like I enjoy that in work now, is that we're finally getting to that point where it's just it's implicit, a lot of it is just implicit stuff. Mm. Um, and I think, I, think that it's, I think that's why I agree completely with what you're saying about teaching, is that, you know, it's... Um, because the practice that we do now in the world is so pluralistic, there's a multiplicity of legitimate positions. There isn't a prevailing orthodoxy, despite, say, the efforts of the parametricists or something. I mean, this idea that there's an overarching dogma is... Do you think, I, I sort of wonder, like, I wonder if, you know, like when David Watkin in 150 years comes to revise his A History of Western Architecture, because yeah, he'll probably still be around then, and... Um, <laughs> and, um, and he, you know, does, like, one page on let's say, the period from the late 90s, so the end of the decon thing, to, let's say, 2025. I sort of feel like if you if you kind of took, like, Arc Daily and you blur, you sort of squinted at it, I feel like that's that's kind of about right in terms of a, an orthodox position. You know, it's, it's there, it's totally available, it's commercially viable, it's, it's all these things. And I think probably, you know, the difference between two positions might be much harder to see in a few years, I wonder. Well, I think that's really interesting, and I disagree on the level that Arc Daily is one thing, and there's the types of architects who submit their work to those mm. blogs, and that's fine. A lot of architects don't, actually, mm. which is also an editing thing. And of course, if you write a history in 100 years' time, you will edit, as mm. all historians mm. ha- edit, to make their position explicit. But it does seem to me that... Um, you know, if you graduate mm. from a school, I mean, when there, you can actually, you could be doing, oh, I don't know, pastiche neo-vernacular, you could be doing high-pomo riffing stuff, you could be doing parametrically engaged form-making, you could be doing neo-vernacular, context-derived, critical regional stuff now, whatever. And they're all legitimate Critically, there yes, isn't, yeah, you know, yeah, and sure. they, they, they're, they're, there's, there's actually a kind of a, a lack of a serious critical engagement in some of those things, perhaps, but then maybe that's always been the case. 
and it's kind of how you get there in the end, you know. Yeah. So in each of those avenues I pointed, I don't see an orthodoxy. You can actually get somewhere really interesting yeah. in any of those avenues, and it seems to be to do with some kind of venturous instinct or some kind of resistance, some kind of desire to make a position for oneself and move forward for oneself. And I think that is a little bit different in that it seems to rely more so on individual practices to do that for themselves than there being a kind of uh, an orthodoxy. You know, um, you know, coming from Ireland and you're from New Zealand and you're from Scotland, one of the things that always happens when you're from a small place is everybody goes, oh, Irish architecture. Of course there's no such thing. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, there's a sensibility. But, you know, I sit with colleagues like Stephen Arkin and Taka and what people might see outside as superficially similar, we see profound philosophical yeah, 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 differences. Yeah, for sure. And they are, and they're absolutely yeah. present, and it's good that they are. Yeah. And I, I kind of enjoy that to a huge extent in a way that I don't think it was like that when, say, our... Right. You know, the Hulidu Group 91, they all did, and now they're all moving in very different directions, but Temple Bar, when it was made, had a commonality of language. People were comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a diminution. Mm-hmm. And it seems different now. And I might be wrong, because it's just we all think that our own time is different. I just like throwing it out there. You disagree, though? Um, I suppose, for sure, I agree that in terms of the critical, critical legitimacy of any position, yeah, that, that, that's absolutely the case, that you can kind of be anywhere and that would be fine. Um, I think there's a kind of... I think there's that kind of blurry, daily orthodoxy of practice that I think is a real real thing, kind of quite heavily under-theorised thing, I think, also, which is interesting. That's true. Um... I, sp- I suppose it's just that at the moment it seems like you have to build your own you build your work and you build the kind of platform for your work at the same time this is this is what I think and I think that that's where teaching is valuable because you, you do somehow need a mirror or some kind of critical armature to support those conversations at certain times mm. do you know what I mean because you're making leaps you're mm. making you're taking risks you're hitting problems and there isn't a kind of an available well you know it's modernism, so we move like this. Or it's brutalism, and we move like this. You know, yeah, I mean, it's interesting if you know, if you're an artist, you'll often have a gallerist, and there'll be certain, there'll be a kind of group around you, a kind of reflecting or commenting or a context for the work you're doing. I mean, without without kind of wanting to hammer too much the analogy, because I think it falls down pretty quickly, but it is pretty hard to sort of find a critical context for the ideas and the work. Mm. I'm aware that I've kept you talking for too long and you've got a lecture to give. So what we like to do is we kind of wind up with if you had a piece of advice to give to students, what would it be? Donald? (laughs) Good timekeeping. I think... um, I, I genuinely would probably say, you know, that it's a relatively long gestation. Yeah. Your training that, that there's no um, there's no sort of issue with uh, is working in practice that are, you know, not on the cutting edge or not necessarily written about or anything like that to kind of learn your craft in a way. It's so important mm. because. Yeah, there's this real myth that if you're not working in a practice that's winning buckets of awards, you stop being interesting. Mm. And it's like you were saying earlier, if you, you can be riffing on the side, you can be developing. <clears throat> Some of the best things you learn come with the ten-year fuse, and they. Mm. I mean, I think I think what I mean is, like, at the same time, there's no. If you have the ambition to go and work for a leading Swiss bank, sure. just do yeah. that. But I suppose the the advice is that it's all valuable. It, it all is. has a kind of. Uh, part in building you as a practitioner. Yeah, yeah. If, um, that's, I mean, as long as you're, but, but I think it's important to say it because as long as people are aware of that, that they're not just because they're ten years out and they're not working for Aljati or something, it doesn't mean that they won't get there on their own terms. I, I think that's important to say. It doesn't. It isn't said enough. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because I think actually my um, thinking back, my best time in practice was certainly when I was working for Tony Fretton but I was able to make a certain contribution because of 
the commercial the kind practice. of grounding and commercial practice that I'd had previously. Makes sense. Um, you know, it was it was a kind of nice uh, stream to sort of dive into. Um, again, it wasn't necessarily full of critical discussion or anything like that. But it is critical. Not at all. But you felt you're doing something of of importance. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's and mm -hmm. you. I was gonna say, I was gonna say the little boom, but um, <laughs> you can teach me boom. I need to learn. <laughs> but I, th I think it's that, and I totally didn't appreciate this at the time. But realizing that the time that I spent when I was a student, being confused and trying to deal with ideas that were bigger than I was able to metabolize, was was important time that it kind of paid off in the end, and somehow. I think when you do things in the right order, they're a bit easier than doing them out of the order. And, and when you're at university or college or when you're a student, that's kind of the time for thinking and trying to figure out what your position is on things. And um, I think probably, given the economic context and the way the schools are and so on and so forth, I guess there could be quite a lot of pressure to skimp on that um, for really understandable reasons, but that work isn't, isn't kind of work for nothing. I think it sets a foundation. What's interesting about the skimping on that is that it happens in a number of different ways, mm -hmm. some of which are esoterica for its own sake, because that also completely avoids this confusion that you're talking about, which is this frustration right. of how do I take this to this? Yeah. You know, they don't go together. And it's also what's really valuable about what you're saying is that that position's obscure to oneself as, as it's being formed. Mm. So in Queens, the, the professor there, Greg, yeah, this nice phrase he used to say to students, which is that they'd say I'm incredibly confused by this, and you go, that's good, because confusion is the feeling of your brain rewiring itself. I think that's true, yeah. Yeah, which is, a, which is a, it turns it around, and you go, okay, well, actually, if I'm not confused for at least half of the year, I'm probably not learning. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Or frustrated, or angry, or hmm. those kind of emotions. Well, I think there's parts, you know, there's parts of architecture which are learnable or teachable. Yeah. And I think there's parts that aren't, and... I think it's bad if you're confused about the bits that are learnable because someone's not teaching you right. True. And it's also bad if you're clear about the things that you should be working at yourself because someone's not challenging you properly. Yeah. But when those things are aligned, you know, in a school, and I get the sense that that's kind of your ambition here. The, the, the position's already... Right. What's wonderful about Kingston is, you know, it's already here. Mm. You know, I'm, I know I'm a latecomer starting in September. What's great about this school is that that's everywhere. Everybody agrees on that. Which is great, because hmm. in other places I've worked, you'd never get to that conversation because everybody spends so much time wondering whether it should even be architecture on the door, or whether we should right. be teaching sociology, or blah blah blah. Here, at least, that's the agreement. Right. That's what we're seeking, seeking, and it's fantastic for that reason. Yeah, yeah. One of the, one of the um, the best skills you you know anywhere is application. It's just if you have this sense of confusion, perhaps one of the best responses to it is just to apply yourself to. To make sense of it, yeah. Rather than just let it waft all over you, and and, and you know, in practice, with a a, a problem with a I don't know, a detail or a whatever, you know, the, it's 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 reason that you have the you you have the ability to resolve it. It's about resolution, but it does take a bit of. I mean, all the things that you're you know taught about self discipline and things like that. There's a there's is a truth there. It is kind of comes down to your instinct to plow, plow into it. To still go back there when you're confused yeah. about it, still yeah. produce a drawing, yeah. do a detail even if you don't know what it is at 1 to 2000 mm -hmm. or 1 to 200. Yeah. Yeah. You have to go to where you can at least make something out of it. Mm. Yeah. That's a very enjoyable conversation guys, we'll wrap it up there, so thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. In our next episode we are joined by the sculptor Maud Cotter and I hope you join us then.